0: Trying to free your mind, Neo, but I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins, a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, just about anything really. If you're interested in anything and everything, come along and listen and enjoy my show. Hello, this is Paul, and welcome to my podcast Origins. This one is entitled Church Makes Ludicrous Apology to Charles Darwin, 126 Years After His Death. Some other stories we'll be looking at include Extreme Waves Worry Australia, Eradicating an Ancient Scourge, and The World's Rarest Tree Frog Has Been Found biologists are on the verge of creating a new life form and a diary entry may offer proof that baseball came from England. Those and some other stories will be covered in this episode of Origins, episode 49. Our first story today comes from the news.bbc.co.uk website and it's by Phil Mercer from Sydney. Extreme Waves Worry Australia Australia's coastline is increasingly being battered by extreme waves that are driven in part by climate change, government scientists say. Research has shown that bigger waves are bearing down on the coastline as severe storms become more frequent the waves could threaten communities with flooding and coastal erosion. The National Science Agency said a network of coastal observation sites should be established to monitor shifting wave patterns. Australia has always borne the brunt of nature's extremes, from drought to bushfires and destructive tropical cyclones scientists from the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, the CSIRO, have identified an emerging threat – monstrous waves that have increasingly pummeled Australia's southern shores. These ferocious conditions are associated with the passage of extratropical storms through the south of the continent. Researchers believe that a shifting climate could be partly to blame They have said that Australia is vulnerable to an accelerated version of global warming, which is causing serious droughts and sudden severe storms. This vast, arid land was recently listed by the United Nations as a climate change hotspot. Large towns and cities dotted along the southeastern coast, which are home to most Australians, could suffer as a result. There is a warning that storm surges and pounding seas will increasingly threaten those communities with flooding and erosion. Research has shown that waves greater than 3 metres or 9 feet in height are becoming more common. While acknowledging the risks, Australian Climate Change Minister Penny Wong said that larger, more active surf also presented opportunities to generate greener electricity and to produce less pollution. Australia needs all the help it can get on that front, as it is one of the world's worst per capita emitters of greenhouse gases. And coming up in a few moments is another story from the bbc.co.uk website. This time it's from the health section. Eradicating an ancient scourge. A story by Fergus Walsh. Ask anyone in which country the world's last victim of smallpox died, and they are unlikely to choose England. But 30 years ago on Thursday, Janet Parker, a medical photographer, died in Birmingham, weeks after being infected with the virus. She had been working in a room above the smallpox laboratory at the University Medical School. The smallpox lab had been earmarked for closure within months because of safety concerns. The incident claimed two lives. The head of smallpox research, Professor Henry Bedson, committed suicide. Thousands of people in Birmingham were immunised as a precaution. It was an unexpected reminder of a deadly and ancient scourge. Smallpox has been killing and disfiguring people for thousands of years. There is evidence of smallpox from lesions on the mummy of Ramesses V, who died in Egypt in 1157 BC. But the disease provided the stimulus for one of the great advances in medicine. It was the subject of the first ever vaccine. In 1796, Edward Jenner, a doctor in Gloucestershire, discovered that immunity to smallpox could be produced by inoculation, with the mild related infection of cowpox. He was testing the theory that since milkmaids rarely got smallpox, perhaps cowpox gave them some protection. Nonetheless, it took nearly 200 years for the disease to finally be eradicated. In 1980, the World Health Organisation declared that the planet was free of smallpox. Professor Lawrence Young of the University of Birmingham said that this was a great achievement. In the 20th century alone, smallpox killed around 300 million people, and those who survived were often left disfigured by scars on the face and body. It was almost impossible to treat smallpox, so when it came to be finally eradicated, it really was a medical milestone which was of huge benefit to the entire world. After the success of smallpox eradication, global health officials are confident other diseases would follow. Like smallpox, polio and measles did not infect animals, so once they are wiped out in humans, the viruses should die out. Although cases of polio have declined by 99%, there are still pockets of infection in Nigeria and three other countries in part due to opposition to immunisation. Measles is another virus which could be wiped out, but a health scare over MMR 10 years ago has helped the disease stage a comeback in the UK. Professor Hugh Pennington from the University of Aberdeen says all the targets for disease eradication of recent decades have been missed. You have to get everybody on board if you are to eradicate a disease, public and politicians. There are people in the UK who think it is an acceptable risk to have your child get measles. I strongly disagree. That means even in the UK we can't get rid of measles. Professor Pennington says there is some good news on the horizon. Guinea worm disease, a parasitic infection, looks close to eradication. This will not be the result of vaccination but through filtering the infected fleas out of drinking water. and an article from the space.newscientist.com website. The brightest gamma-ray burst was aimed at Earth. And this is an article by Rachel Cortland. Astronomers think they know what caused the brightest ever gamma-ray burst, which was observed in March. A tightly beamed jet of matter that happened to be aimed almost directly at Earth. Gamma-ray bursts are thought to be caused when massive spinning stars collapse to form black holes and spew out jets of gas at nearly the speed of light. These send gamma rays our way along with visible light produced when the jet heats up surrounding gas. On March 19 astronomers nabbed a view of the brightest such burst ever to be seen in visible light. The blast, dubbed GRB 080319b, came from seven and a half billion light-years away, more than halfway across the universe. Despite the immense distance, it would have been visible with the naked eye at dark sites on Earth for 40 seconds. Combining information from more than a dozen different telescopes, an international team found GRB 080319b contains what appears to be a particularly tightly focused jet surrounded by a dimmer one. The find could explain why most other bursts seen are not nearly as luminous. Only rarely does the narrow beam point at Earth. This is the first time astronomers have been able to discern the cross-section of a gamma-ray burst jet, says Jonathan Grindley of the Harvard-Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who was not involved with the study. It starts to give us a hint as to what these jets really look like. To discern the structure of the jet, researchers attempted to fit the signature of visible light and X-rays to a fireball model which describes the shape that a single jet cone is supposed to take. But the model did not fit, said David Burrows of Penn State University in University Park. Instead, a better model suggests that the gamma-ray burst may have released light in two components. Firstly, it shot out a tightly focused beam of light roughly 1% the width of the full moon on the sky. A dimmer beam that was 20 times wider eventually followed. Most of the gamma-ray bursts we observe might actually have this same jet structure, the astronomers say. Most of the time, we only see the dimmer light. But every 10 years or so, a narrow jet might be pointed in the right direction For us to catch it. If all gamma ray bursts have this structure, they could be 10 to 100 times more common than previous estimates, Grindlay says. A number of far off ones would evade detection because they would be too dim for current telescopes to find them, unless the primary jet was pointed directly at Earth. Future telescopes like the Energetic X-ray Imaging Survey Telescope, which is currently under consideration by NASA, might be able to detect such bursts at very early times in the Universe's history. Gamma-ray bursts could potentially act as backlights for the intervening Universe, allowing astronomers to discern the composition of intergalactic gas and galactic halos. Because the accelerating expansion of space is also causing time to dilate, gamma-ray bursts that occurred a few hundred million years after the Big Bang would be seen to last ten or more times longer, making observations even easier, Grinlay says. And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article, you'll see there's a short YouTube video showing how astronomers think light from a gamma ray burst was released. And from the damninteresting.com website, an article by Alan Bellows, written on February 7, 2007. The Pepcon Disaster. Just before lunchtime on May 4, 1988, at a facility near Henderson, Nevada, a panicked maintenance crew could be seen dashing away from the site of the Pacific Engineering Production Company, also known as PEPCON. Behind them, a moderate but ambitious-looking fire was establishing itself in a large storage lot. The crew had been repairing a wind-damaged steel and fiberglass building when a stray spark from their welder somehow managed to set fire to the structure. The men fetched some nearby water hoses and attempted to douse the flames, but the flourishing fire mocked their efforts and soon began to fondle the 55-gallon drums stored nearby. With this alarming development, the crew abandoned their hoses and gave up the fight in favour of a hasty departure. The workers knew exactly what was in these barrels, and they didn't wish to be present to observe how it would react to the flames. At that time, Pepcon was one of the only US producers of the chemical ammonium perchlorate, a key ingredient in the rocket fuel used for Space Shuttle boosters and Titan missiles. This white granular compound is a powerful oxidizer, and its purpose is to accelerate rocket fuel combustion. Also present at the facility were bulk quantities of other hazardous materials used in manufacturing, such as hydrochloric acid and nitric acid. There were over 4,000 tonnes of ammonium perchlorate in the storage area that day, so the anxiety-stricken workers fled with great enthusiasm. The Challenger explosion 15 months earlier had prompted NASA to freeze the space shuttle program pending investigation, yet the United States government continued to contract PEPCON at pre-Challenger quantities. Consequently, the containers full of the unused fuel component had slowly accumulated, making this site pregnant with stored energy. Over the years, the entire facility had become peppered with residue from the ammonium perchlorate. Stiff winds on the day of the maintenance workers visit conspired against them and quickly turned a small welding accident into a brilliant orange fireball. As news of the fire spread, most of the employees rushed to evacuate the six buildings, but a man named Roy Westerfield stayed behind and called 911. Dispatcher, Fire Department. Westerfield, Emergency. We need the fire department. All you can get here, immediately. Dispatcher, What's the problem? Westerfield, Oh, we've got everything's on fire. At about the same time, The chief of the Clark County Fire Department noticed the column of smoke on the horizon and ordered his units to go to the location immediately. He and a passenger climbed into his car and raced to the scene ahead of the fire trucks. The intense fireball became visible from about a mile away, belching its column of acrid smoke into the sky. Soon the pair began to see dozens of fear-stricken Pepcon employees on the roadsides, men and women hurrying away from the burning facility on foot in spite of the midday desert heat. A few minutes later, as the chief neared the cluster of flaming buildings, he and his passenger were blinded by an abrupt flash. The car rocked and windows exploded as the vehicle was slammed by a deafening shockwave. As the explosion's echoes slowly faded, the fire chief stopped the car to assess the situation and tend to a few cuts caused by the hail of broken glass. Moments later, a badly damaged vehicle approached from the direction of the plant and its driver paused alongside the chief just long enough to warn him that the worst of the explosions were probably yet to come. Realising that the Inferno had grown far beyond his fire department's fire suppression capabilities, the chief turned his car around and headed back towards Henderson. The fire crews had reached the same dismal conclusion when they observed the explosion during their approach. It was clear that there were serious safety concerns in moving any closer, so the firefighters pulled their trucks off the road about a mile from the disaster in progress and watch the towering flames from afar. A mile away in another direction, an engineering crew had been performing routine maintenance on a television tower on Black Mountain, when they spotted the fire and began filming. About four minutes after the first major explosion, the engineers watched in awe as the Pepcon site completely disappeared in a spectacular burst of energy that dwarfed the initial blast. Their vantage point afforded them a perfect view of the compression wave as it recklessly radiated across the desert, mowing down brush and demolishing a marshmallow factory adjacent to Pepcon. Due to the distance, the sound of the blast didn't reach them for several seconds. But when it did, it was thunderous. The Clark County Fire Chief was still trying to put distance between himself and the facility when the violent detonation struck the blast wave swept in rapidly from behind and clobbered his wounded car, momentarily smothering him in an avalanche of noise and pressure. When the moment passed, he was astonished to find that the vehicle was still somewhat operational in spite of the significant bruising. He continued his retreat and eventually limped his injured automobile past the columns of idling fire engines, their pulverised windows littering the roadway. By the time he reached town and found his way to the hospital, there were already hundreds of people gathered there waiting treatment. The explosion, one and a half miles away, had dislodged parts of buildings and shattered windows in town, causing many instances of trauma and lacerations. On the horizon, a plume of smoke rose 1,000 feet into the sky and the column was said to be visible from as far as 100 miles away. Some distant observers reportedly wondered whether this mushroom cloud indicated that the long-running Cold War had finally progressed into the hot war that Americans feared. The frenzied inferno at Pepcon finally calmed once the explosions had consumed the majority of the fuel. The cataclysmic blasts had ripped a hole in the ground and ruptured a gas line, but the resulting 200-foot-tall flame was easily starved to death by shutting off the gas feed from a station a mile away. Investigators arrived to survey the damage, and they found utter devastation. Pepcon's six buildings were totally destroyed, and where they had stood was nothing but twisted metal and a 15-foot-deep crater. The neighbouring Marshmallow factory fared no better, having been unable to absorb the incredible pressure wave. Many structures in Henderson also suffered damage, mostly in the form of shattered windows, cracked walls and doors that were blown from their hinges. Some buildings as far as 10 miles away were affected. Though there were almost 400 injuries reported, both from Ground Zero and from Henderson residents, surprisingly there were only two deaths. One was a worker confined to a wheelchair who had been unable to exit from the Pepcon building quickly enough. The other was Roy Westerfield, the very man who made the original 911 call. He had been handicapped by the effects of polio, leaving him unable to walk very well. It is generally believed that he opted to stay behind and alert the authorities, knowing that escape was unlikely. Further investigation into the event found that the destructive energy from the larger explosion was roughly equivalent to 1,000 tonnes of TNT, or 1 kiloton. It caused seismograph needles to dance as far away as Colorado, where the sensitive equipment measured the distant tremor as a 3.5 on the Richter scale. Pepcon lawyers responded quickly, attempting to pin the blame on Southwest Gas Company, The lawyers claimed that the natural gas fire occurred first, subsequently causing the ammonium perchlorate explosions. Three days after the disaster, one of these attorneys claimed, Nothing ignites ammonium perchlorate. It does not burn. It is not flammable. Though the compound was not considered to be an extreme explosive threat before the Pepcon disaster, Chemists pointed out that the attorney's grasp of chemistry must be as flimsy as his grasp of ethics. They described the chemical as unstable and highly flammable. Pepcon had only $1 million in insurance, a policy which was grossly insufficient to pay for the damage to others' property. A colossal courtroom battle ensued involving dozens of insurance companies and over 50 law firms the outcome of this massive orgy of justice was 1 million pages of depositions and a 71 million dollar settlement which was divided among the victims and their families. Pepcon never rebuilt the Henderson site. The company changed its name to Western Electrochemical Co and built a new ammonium perchlorate plant in Cedar City, Utah, which remains in operation today. But Their safety record has certainly improved since the 1988 disaster. To date, there has only been one deadly explosion at the new facility. The following article comes from the bbc.co.uk website, and it's a story by Rebecca Morell. The world's rarest tree frog has been found. An extremely rare female frog has been spotted for the first time in 20 years. The tiny tree frog, Ismajala rivularis, was seen in Costa Rica's Monteverde Cloud Forest Preserve. This species was thought to have become extinct two decades ago, but last year a University of Manchester researcher caught a glimpse of a male. However, the discovery of the female and more males suggests this species is breeding and has been able to survive where many other frogs have not. Andrew Gray, a herpetologist from Manchester Museum at the University of Manchester, said, This has been the highlight of my whole career. Now that we know that both sexes exist in the wild, we should intensify efforts to understand their ecology and further their conservation. The BBC has been following the team from the University of Manchester and Chester Zoo that is working on amphibian conservation programs. The BBC video of the frog is the first known footage of this species. And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article, you can see two videos of this frog. The 2.5cm long female, which was released after the discovery, was brown with metallic green speckles and was packed full of eggs. Finding female frogs is extremely difficult. Males make a distinctive call, but females are silent for most of the time and tracking down this particular species in a great expanse of rainforest was even more difficult. The team had few clues about where the frogs might be, and the search could only take place at night. The team trekked deep into the forest to a spot close to where the male, Ismahyla rivularis, was spotted last year. The researchers first discovered another male from its soft insect-like call. The conservationists then trained their torches on the undergrowth and eventually Louis Obando, head of park maintenance at Monteverdi's Tropical Science Centre, found the tiny female which was sitting on a leaf. Mr Gray told the BBC, It is hard to describe just how unlikely it was to have discovered a female of this particular species. The only time you ever come across a female is by chance, and it is only once in a blue moon that they come down to lay their eggs. You really have to be in the right place at the right time. You could come out here every night for a year and not see a thing. I really think that this time we had luck on our side. The discovery of both sexes of this species has given the researchers hope that this population may be surviving against the odds. Mr Gray explained, Last year, when we saw the male, we had no idea whether this was one of the last few remaining male specimens of this species. But now we have found the female, there is hope that the species may recover. It still seems that these critically endangered creatures are on the very brink of extinction, and although we have been intensively searching the streams all through the night, it appears that the density of the population is precarious. The researchers swabbed the frogs before they were released to see if they are carrying any chytrid fungus, a disease thought to have killed many other species in the area. They also use a spectrometer to look at the properties of the frog's skin to try to find out why this species has survived where others have not. It is imperative for the future conservation of Costa Rican amphibians that collaborative efforts harness the skill of biologists, researchers, educators and committed individuals if we are to save these rare species, Mr Gray added. Just a little feedback about the podcast. I found this one on Podcast Alley, and it's from GP User. Nice work. Origins and mysteries abound. Whole positions in my top five. Well, thanks, GP User. Your feedback is much appreciated. And just at this point, I'd like to say that I tried to do the Paul Rex live show today. It's just quarter to 12 here in Brisbane, Australia. And unfortunately, only one person turned up. And I'd like to say thanks to Nick for coming along. I gave the podcast about 20 minutes to see what had happened and No one turned up, so I thought I'll just give it a break. Maybe people just prefer listening to the recorded version. I did find this was the case with my podcasts, and that's why I went to this pre-recorded version in the first place. Now, just to let my listeners know that I'm actually going on holidays for a couple of weeks, so there'll be no Mysteries Abound, Bizarre Bizarre, or Origins for about two to three weeks, which is unfortunate for you and unfortunate for me because I don't get the fun of recording them but my family hasn't been on holiday for about 18 months and we're going up to Maruchidorin, which is in the north coast of uh, Queensland here and we're going to have a two week holiday in our camping trailer which should be quite nice. No computers, no work, just nice relaxing on the beach and it's about 25 degrees Celsius here about 80 something degrees Fahrenheit so the weather's looking good. So after this podcast I'll catch you in a couple of weeks. So let's go on with some more stories. And this story comes from the sportsillustrated.cnn.com website. Diary entry may offer proof that baseball came from England. London. Baseball is American as... tea and crumpets? That may be the case according to a diary uncovered in southern England last year but only now being made public. Julian Pooley... The manager of the Surrey History Centre said Thursday he has authenticated a reference to baseball in a diary by English lawyer William Bray dating back to 1755, about 50 years before what was previously believed to have been the first known reference to what became the American pastime. "'I know his handwriting very well,' Pooley told the Associated Press in a telephone interview adding he believed the game wasn't very common at the time. He printed it to show it was new to him. He doesn't mention baseball again. It was something that seemed special. Bray wrote that he played the game with both men and women on the day after Easter, a traditional holiday in England. He was about 18 or 19 at the time of the diary entry, Pooley said. He was a very social man. He enjoyed sports. The entry reads Easter Monday, 31st of March, 1755 Went to Stoke this morning After dinner went to Miss Jeels to play at baseball with her The three Miss Whiteheads, Miss Billinghurst, Miss Molly Flutter, Mr Chandler, Mr Ford and H Parsons and Jelly Drank tea and stayed till eight Baseball has long been thought to have been an American invention, with its roots in the British games of rounders and cricket. The first recorded competitive baseball game took place in Hoboken, New Jersey, in 1846 between the Alexander Cartwright's Knickerbocker Baseball Club of New York and the New York Nine. The first professional team played in 1869, and the first professional league started two years later. Bray, who died in 1832, kept a diary for much of his life and wrote a history of Surrey. He also transcribed and published the diary and writings of English writer John Evelyn. Pooley said he first became aware of Bray's reference in July 2007, after local historian Tricia St John Barry notified Major League Baseball to say she'd found a notation of the game that predated their own findings. She said, I've got a reference in a diary I found in the shed, Pooley said. Pooley said St John Barry only told MLB about the diary after researchers came to England last year working on a movie by Major League Baseball Advanced Media called Baseball Discovered, which examines the origins of the sport. She didn't realise its significance before that, Pooley said. The movie is to be shown next week at the Baseball Film Festival in Cooperstown, New York, the home of the Sports Hall of Fame. While filming our documentary in England, we met Tricia, who responded to a BBC piece on our film crew being in the country, looking at the roots of baseball, mlb.com said on its website. This discovery places William Bray in a new role of importance and provides insight into baseball's beginnings. The Surrey History Centre said there is a reference to baseball that came earlier than Bray's, but it appears in a fictional book by John Newbery called A Little Pretty Book*. Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey also refers to baseball. It was written in 1798, but not published until 1817. It is a game steeped in history, and now Surrey County Council's History Centre and an inquisitive local historian have provided the earliest manuscript proof that the game the Americans gave to the world came from England, said Helen Clack, an executive member for safer and stronger communities at the Surrey County Council. A copy of the diary is to go on display at Surrey History Centre on Saturday. To our feature story for today and this comes from the dailymail.co.uk website and it's written by Jonathan Petrie. Church makes ludicrous apology to Charles Darwin 126 years after his death. The Church of England will tomorrow officially apologise to Charles Darwin for misunderstanding his theory of evolution. In a bizarre step, the Church will address its contrition directly to the Victorian scientist himself, even though he died 126 years ago. But the move was greeted with derision last night with Darwin's great-great-grandson dismissing it as pointless and other critics branding it ludicrous. Church officials compared the apology to the late Pope John Paul II's decision to say sorry for the Vatican's 1633 trial of Galileo the astronomer who appalled prelates by declaring that the earth revolved around the sun. The officials said that senior bishops wanted to atone for the vilification their predecessors heaped on Darwin in the 1860s when he put forward his theory that man was descended from apes. The Church is also anxious to counter the view that its teaching is incompatible with science. It wants to distance itself from fundamentalist Christians who believe in the biblical account of the creation of the world in seven days. An article to be posted on the church website will say, Charles Darwin, 200 years from your birth in 1809, the Church of England owes you an apology for misunderstanding you and by getting our first reaction wrong, encouraging others to misunderstand you still. But the struggle for your reputation is not yet over. And the problem is not just your religious opponents, but those who falsely claim you in support of their own interests. The article has been written by the Reverend Dr. Malcolm Brown, the Director of Mission and Public Affairs of the Archbishop's Council, the Church's Managing Body, which is headed by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Rowan Williams. Dr. Brown writes, people and institutions make mistakes and Christian people and churches are no exception. When a big new idea emerges that changes the way people look at the world, it's easy to feel that every old idea, every certainty is under attack and then to do battle against the new insights. The church made that mistake with Galileo's astronomy and has since realised its error. Some church people did it again in the 1860s with Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection. So it is important to think again about Darwin's impact on religious thinking, then and now. Dr. Brown argues that there is nothing incompatible between the scientific theories adopted by Darwin and Christian teaching. The English naturalist, geologist and collector, best known for his 1859 book, On the Origin of Species, scandalised Victorian society with his theory that all species of life evolved from common ancestors. One of the most venomous clashes over his ideas took place in 1860 during a debate at Oxford University. The Bishop of Oxford, Samuel Wilberforce, asked the evolutionist and Darwin champion Thomas Huxley whether it was through his grandfather or his grandmother that he claimed to be descended from a monkey. Huxley replied that he would not be ashamed to have an ape for his ancestor, but he would be ashamed to be connected with a man who used his gifts to obscure the truth. In his article, Dr Brown writes, Darwin's theory caused offence because it challenged the view that God had created human beings as an entirely different kind of creation to the rest of the animal world. But while it is not difficult to see why evolutionary thinking was offensive at the time, on reflection it is not such an earth-shattering idea. The churches move or reignite the debate over creationism. In the United States... Republican vice-presidential candidate Sarah Paulin argues that it should be taught in schools. In this country, the Reverend Professor Michael Rees, a biologist director of education at the Royal Society, provoked a furor last week when he called for creationism to be treated in school science lessons as a legitimate world view. Last night, the church, which apologised for its role in the slave trade two years ago, came in for fierce criticism for its latest mea culpa. Former Conservative minister Anne Widcombe, who left the Church of England to become a Roman Catholic, said, It's absolutely ludicrous. Why don't we have the Italians apologising for Pontius Pilate? We've already apologised for slavery and for the Crusades. When is it all going to stop? It's insane and makes the Church of England look ridiculous. Andrew Darwin, a great-great-grandson of the eminent scientist, said he was bemused by the apology, which seemed pointless. Why bother, he said, when an apology is made after 200 years? It's not so much to right a wrong, but to make the person or organisation making the apology feel better. Terry Sanderson, President of the National Secular Association, said, it does seem rather crazy for an institution to address an apology to an individual so long after his death. As well as being much too late, the message strikes me as insincere, as if there is an unspoken but behind the text. However, if it means that from now on the Church of England will say no to the teaching of creationism in school science lessons, then we would accept the apology on Darwin's behalf. A less critical tone was struck by Horace Barlow, 87, from Cambridge, who was Darwin's great-grandson. He said he thought his ancestor would have been pleased to hear the church's apology. They buried him in Westminster Abbey, which I suppose was an apology of sorts, said Mr Barlow. Darwin was very concerned about offending other people, as his wife Emma was a committed Christian, so I think this apology would... Have pleased him. And coming up from the live A huge ancient lake has been discovered in Russia and this is by Andrea Thompson, the Senior Writer for Live Science. A huge ancient lake, once dammed up by vast ice sheets on the last ice age, has been found by geologists in Russia. Large glacial lakes were known to cover parts of Russia and North America during the ice age. One of the most well known is Lake Agassiz which covered portions of Canada and northern Minnesota more than 10,000 years ago. At the time, it was the largest freshwater lake on the planet, with an area larger than all of the present-day Great Lakes combined, larger even than California. Last year, geologists found the remnants of a lake near a Russian village called Utsnum, Now the same lake has been found to extend 435 to 497 miles to the west, near another village called Kotlas. By comparison, Lake Superior, the largest of the Great Lakes, is 350 miles long at its greatest length. The ancient lake, no longer a lake, is just a few tens of kilometres away from the Ural Mountains. Geologists are taking samples of sediments to shed light on the history of this and other glacial lakes that formed in the region. We're trying to find out just what these lakes have looked like, said Ilov Larsen, a geologist with the Geological Survey of Norway. Where did the sediments come from and how did the lakes influence the environment and the climate in the region? Lake Agassiz is thought to have possibly influenced the North Atlantic climate when it suddenly drained into what is now Hudson Bay, potentially raising sea levels and altering the ocean circulation. The Russian lake could have had similar consequences when the ice hemming it in finally melted and the lake's fresh water potentially poured into the Arctic Ocean. Geologists studying the area as part of the International Polar Year effort have found evidence of the surrounding ice. We're finding traces of the snout of a glacier that carved into the lake from the north, Larsen said. This probably took place around 20,000 years ago and this was the youngest lake in the region. Larsen and his colleagues are also finding traces of older glacial lakes. Lakes have probably been situated here in two periods during the last ice age, he said. We've found river delta deposits, which suggest that the oldest lake formed some 65,000 years ago. These lakes can also leave an imprint on the surrounding land. Lake Agassiz left remnant lakes behind, and the land it once covered is still rebounding from the lost weight of the water pressing down. And from the book, Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things, we're continuing with the superstition's theme. Walking under a ladder, 3000 BC, Egypt. Here is one superstition whose origin appears to be grounded in obvious and practical advice. Walking under a ladder, after all, should be avoided since a workman's plummeting tool could become a lethal weapon. The true origin of the superstition though has nothing to do with practicality a ladder leaning against a wall forms a triangle long regarded by many societies as the most common expression of a sacred trinity of gods the pyramid tombs of the pharaohs for example were based on triangular planes in fact for a commoner To pass through a triangulated arch was tantamount to defiance of a sanctified space. To the Egyptians, the ladder itself was a symbol of good luck. It was a ladder that rescued the sun god Osiris from imprisonment by the spirit of darkness. The ladder was also a favorite pictorial sign to illustrate the ascent of gods. And ladders were placed in the tombs of Egyptian kings to help them climb heavenward. Centuries later, followers of Jesus Christ usurped the ladder superstition, interpreting it in the light of Christ's death. Because a ladder had rested against the crucifix, it became a symbol of wickedness, betrayal and death. Walking under a ladder courted misfortune. In England and France in the 1600s, criminals on their way to the gallows were compelled to walk under a ladder while the executioner, called the groom of the ladder, walked around it. Ancient cultures invariably had antidotes to their most feared superstitions. For a person who inadvertently walked under a ladder, or who was forced to do so for convenience of passage, the prescribed Roman antidote was the sign of the fico. This nullifying gesture was made by closing the fist and allowing the thumb to protrude between the index and middle fingers. The fist was then thrust forward at the ladder. Any person interested in applying the antidote today should be aware that the phico was also a Roman phallic gesture, believed to be the precursor of the extended middle finger, whose accompanying incantation is not all that different in sound from phico. And our final main story today comes from the www.archaeologynews.org website. Greece unearths treasures at Alexander's birthplace. Athens. Archaeologists have unearthed gold jewellery, weapons and pottery at an ancient burial site near Pella in northern Greece. The birthplace of Alexander the Great, the culture ministry said on Thursday. The excavations at the vast Cemetery uncovered 43 graves dating from 650 to 279 BC, which shed light on the early development of the Macedonian Kingdom, which had an empire that stretched as far as India under Alexander's conquests. Among the most interesting discoveries were the graves of 20 warriors, dating to the late archaic period between 580 and 460 BC, the ministry said in a statement. Some were buried in bronze helmets alongside iron swords and knives. Their eyes, mouths and chests were covered in gold foil, richly decorated with drawings of lions and other animals symbolizing royal power. The discovery is rich in historical importance, shedding light on Macedonian culture during the Archaic period, Pavlos Christostomou, who headed the eight-year project that investigated a total of 900 graves, told Reuters. Pavlos said the graves confirmed evidence of an ancient Macedonian society organized along militaristic lines and with overseas trade as early as the second half of the 7th century BC. Among the excavated graves, the team also found 11 women from the Archaic period, with gold and bronze necklaces, earrings and brooches. Nine of the graves dated to the late classical or early Hellenistic period, around the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BC. Alexander, whose father, Philip II, unified the city-states of mainland Greece, conquered most of the world known to the ancient Greeks before dying at the age of 32 in Babylon. Educated by the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, Alexander was never defeated in battle. Hello! 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 Hello. Quiet numbskulls, I'm broadcasting. And as usual, just to finish off a few stories from the World Wide Weird. A museum at a former home of Mahatma Gandhi has a new exhibit. A replica of the specially built mobile toilet used by the father of Indian independence. The retreat in Ahmedabad, Western India, recreated the loo, which was removed 22 years ago for being inappropriate. Ah, and here's a local story. A Sydney woman who refused to register her car because it was her God-given right to drive has lost an appeal to overturn her conviction. Rosalina Rainema has been in jail since December after driving while disqualified and will be freed tomorrow. She is barred from driving until May 2023. The Democratic Republic of Congo's Deputy Justice Minister has ordered a Kinshasa jail to release a dozen goats that were due to appear in court on charges of being sold illegally. The minister said police had serious gaps in their knowledge and would be sent for retraining. A Manchester mum has failed her driving test after she accidentally splashed a man at a bus stop when she went through a puddle. Michelle Kelly, 31, was told by the examiner it was technically a crash and she should have exchanged details with the pedestrian. Police in California arrested a man for breaking into two farm workers' homes and stealing money before rubbing one with spices and hitting the other with a sausage. The man was later found in a field in a T-shirt, boxer shorts and socks, The money was recovered, but a dog had eaten the sausage. And finally for today, a Swiss man has sold an elaborate Virgin Mary tattoo on his back to a German collector, with the understanding it can be exhibited three times yearly, a Zurich gallery said today. The extraordinary transaction which gallery owner Jutta Nexdorf claims is the first of its kind, fetched 257880 Australian dollars, with the other main stipulation being that the 35-hour work can be removed from the bearer's skin upon death and handed to its owner. The owner will be allowed to sell the tattoo, created by Belgian artist Wim Delvoy and notable for depicting the mother of Jesus with a lifeless skull. Proceeds from the sale are being shared among the gallery, tattoo bearer Tim Steiner, and Delvoy, Nexdorf told AFP. The tattoo will go on show for the first time next week in Singapore and Shanghai. <laughs> Well, that concludes episode 49 of origins i hope you enjoyed today's podcast and i'm looking forward to seeing you all again in two to three weeks for episode 50 much of the music for today's podcast came from the podsafe music network and they can be found at music.potshow.com and i'd like to thank those of you who have taken the trouble to provide feedback for the show it is much appreciated Remember, that can be done at iTunes or through Podcast Alley or wherever you found the feed or directly via email at paulrex at paulrex.com. Well, I'm looking forward to my holiday and I hope you don't mind having a two to three week break without me. I'm sure you'll get by. So it's bye for now.